Hello, uh, thank you very much for joining us and thank you very much indeed to our guest today, Raja Khatidi. Uh, Raja uh, is uh, uh, our special guest. This is being our seventh uh, Palestine deep dive video discussion um, and we're delighted that he's been able to find time for us uh, speaking as he is from Ramallah. Um, Raja is Director General of the Palestine Economic Policy Research Institute, MASS, and is a development economist. Uh, he's worked with the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, from 1985 to 2013. And as a senior economist, he served as coordinator of its program of assistance to the Palestinian people. Uh, he's head of its debt and de development finance branch and chief of the office of the director of the Division of Globalization and Development Strategies, which is a uh, quite a lot to get our heads around but we're going to be asking him a bit about the work that he uh, has been doing and the work he's doing currently um, and also we're hoping that some of you may be able to join us uh, send us send the questions into Raja uh, we have a very special focus this week given uh, Raja's expertise on the Palestine economy um, I'm Mark Seddon uh, I used to work for the UN uh, for the Al Jazeera as the UN correspondent and previously worked for the UN for the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. And last year, I was back with the President of the General Assembly, uh, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. Uh, really, before uh, we, we go any further, before we take any questions, uh, just to remind you, uh, Raja Khalidi is here with us today. And I wondered if I could just begin by asking you, um, so tell us something about the, the, the organization you're working for. I mean, how did it come about um, and, and what are you seeking to do? Yeah, the MASS was established uh, along with the Palestinian Authority in 1994. So it's uh, just celebrated 25 years of, of autonomous, uh, independent uh, scientific research amidst a, a landscape which is, you know, full of all sorts of agendas, political, international, etc. So, MASS is a research institute aimed at providing policymakers, government, but also we have a lot of work with the private sector, uh, policymakers in all areas of economic policy, with sound, well-studied uh, advice informed by 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 global, regional, and 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 the very specific specific uh, challenges Palestine faces as an economy which is under occupation which is trying, struggling to, to develop state-like institutions. So our position is very much, a, a, we're embedded really into the policymaking a dialogue and into the economic uh, uh, literature on Palestine. Uh, and we've created a generation of economists to work with us uh, as staff or experts. I'm the most recent addition to that, to those ranks, but I've been aff affiliated with MASS for 25 years, including when I was with the UN. So it's it's an institution, a vibrant institution, small, but uh, we work with a lot of uh, international organizations. We do work with them as well as Arab funding organizations, Palestinian government, and uh, we try to keep up with the with the rapidly changing uh, challenges that this sort of place generates. I mean, how closely to um, do other uh, countries listen to you? I'm thinking particularly of the Europeans and North Americans, other countries in the Middle East, uh, you know, potential investors in the Palestine economy. Um, you know, what sort of connections do you have with them? Well, I mean, our, our work is primarily to generate knowledge and we've, we've done, we have an extraordinarily wide knowledge base on the Palestinian economy and we know that it's used. I mean, so so we are a place where people can come and get, get the right opinion, get the, the most recent data. Uh, we occasionally, you know, engage in sort of uh, 
coalitions with uh, private sector uh, investors, uh, as I said, international research institutes, international agencies. Uh, so we're multi. We, we work on multi levels, but our core mission is to is to make sure that Palestinian policymakers listen. You know, ask mm -hmm. ask for good ask for advice. I mean, I've worked in the UN, so I know what it yes. means to not well, listen. Just to. Briefly, ask you about that because for some time you were based at uh, the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development in Geneva. People may not be familiar with that uh, organization necessarily, but it's been very powerful over the years. Very closely associated with the non-aligned movement and with the global South. Uh, and uh, a very, very progressive voice within the organization. Um, but so, I mean, how, how, how do your links with the UN actually help you in the work that you do? Well, I mean, it's built me. I mean, to be honest, I spent most of the bulk of my career, professional career as an economist with UNCTAD, uh, working on Palestine, in fact. So I was responsible for many years and involved and responsible for many years in a Palestine assistance program, which is a unique sort of uh, uh, a frame for looking at the Palestinian economy compared to the work that you get from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or the donors. So being situated in the United, in, in UNCTAD in particular, this sort of a program was able to continue and continues to produce quality research. I also was able, I mean, it also meant that I, I worked in the division of globalization and development strategies. So when the first, when our last great recession hit, uh, I was really fortunate to be, we were in the midst of, uh, of things, UNCTAD. And UNCTAD's relevance comes and goes, but I mean, it's still there. It's still a voice for developing countries and for development, for justice and international economic relations. Um, so that legacy, you know, I hope to, to I, I hope that it will, you know, infuse to a certain extent with what we're doing here. But here, you know, uh, we're, we have the same development challenges that other countries have, but as you're aware, we have so few of the tools. To, to well, I was just going to ask you about that because um, you know, Raja's uh, you know Palestine uh, may be recognised by a number of uh, UN member states around the world, but it's still not yet a sovereign state. So, I mean, you don't really have the same kind of uh, fiscal and monetary uh, s systems or abilities that uh, other sovereign states would have. So, you know, you could. You, you can be offering advice, but in practical terms, you're, you're, you must be quite limited in, in, in what you can advise the Palestinian Authority to be able to do. We felt that, I mean, very vividly. We all, well, that is always a problem. But, you know, the Oslo agreements and, and the economic framework that it bestowed for the last 25 years gave the Palestinian Authority, let's say, the powers of a provincial regional government in most uh, uh, in comparative terms. Uh, so that included, you know, major taxation, major uh, bank reg financial regulation, social service, the whole range, including political and, and other other uh, functions. But so, I mean, within that box, within that uh, toolbox, there's there has been a lot to be done. Mm. Uh, and, and much of the past 10 years, especially, I would say 10 years because of you were, there was a second intifada, and then there was a Palestinian political division, and, and and for the last ten years there's been a sort of a reform period that was going on, but it did run out of steam precisely for the reasons that you're saying, because we got to a point where what counted was no longer just being able to get you know efficiently uh, 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 raise public revenue, but the the issue of exchange rates and the lack of a, you know we don't have resort to monetary policy, we don't have resort to direct, immediate control of our, our trade policy, we're, we're linked to Israel and all, and all of those things. So, you know, the, the limits, the, con the structural limits of the relationship with Israel are always being brought back to us. And this was seen in, in, in the most recent crisis when, you know, we couldn't go to the IMF like anybody else and ask for a loan to, to help mm -hmm. get through it, for example.
yes well i mean i mean for 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 people watching and for people who don't have a great deal of knowledge about um you know you know the livelihoods of people in the palestinian territories in palestine i mean can you give us some essential uh description of economic life for most palestinians and what are the mainstays of the economy sure we i mean this is a you know it's a small open developing economy which means that it's that its natural resource base is very limited uh, it's um, its space uh, because of uh, political division is is very very constrained, and its uh, 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 main reliance has been and the Palestinian people are still around because of human resources. It's the human resource base which Palestine has always uh, excelled in, and to a great extent for the last twenty five years, the advice that Palestinians were being given from international economic institutions. Was build the, the knowledge economy, build the service economy. That's what you could do in this in this globalized uh, world. So that, as well as the terms of the economic relationship with Israel, which meant that we adopted the Israeli trade regime, which is a very liberal uh, one, and suffered all the consequences of that, but didn't have the structural the the, the tools to to deal with the structural transformation that that caused, meant that we've 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 uh, gotten to the point. We got to the point let's say a few years ago, where that model was no longer working. Uh, uh, the export-led development model was no longer working. Um, uh, with, you know, Palestinian industry, we have industries, we've now gotten into a stage where where light industries are starting to, to not, I won't mm -hmm. say flourish, but are starting to prove themselves viable, where agriculture, which had been neglected for many years, has now not, I won't say come back into vogue, but we've now realized how important it is to have a certain degree of self-sufficiency. But I mean, we tend to, I mean, the economy tends to continue to be reliant on external resources. And those external mm -hmm. resources are both donor resources, but also the fact that 11, 20, 12% of our working force work in Israel. Raja, we've got a question. This comes from uh, Shubda, and she uh, has been in touch. She's getting in touch from uh, Delhi, New Delhi in India. Uh, she, she asks, what are the challenges to generating knowledge, research, regarding economic realities in the West Bank, especially due to the surveillance of Israel and lack of tech sovereignty in Palestine? Well, I mean, that's, a, that's a, you know, a new dimension of the sort of colonial subjugation that the economy is, 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 has to live with. Um, the, the, the tech, there's a very strong uh, Palestinian tech sector. Uh, it's small. It's not very well organized, but it's proven itself in, in, in subcontracting arrangements at the level of, of, of the late competing developing countries. Uh, but that, that sector, I mean, our, our cyberspace is controlled by Israel precisely. Our uh, radiomagnetic space is controlled by Israel. Um, and uh, the ability to access global, I mean, it, one would assume that, you know, in, in digital economy, the, the, there are no borders, but no, there are borders, and those borders are to do with the way the big corporations deal with regional hubs and with with, with smaller produ producers, etc. So, you know, we we always even in the pandemic, uh, when we realized we knew that it was happening here. When you know, when I say we were hit badly, everybody in the world's been hit badly. So, I mean, this is the first time that that, that we went through an economic crisis that was not specific to us, right? Yeah, but I, we I, had. Russia, on top of this, or before all of this, what we see, uh, you know, from the outside is uh, uh, the situation as pertaining in the West Bank and the occupation uh, and the dependence on the Israeli economy, as you've been outlining. But 
you know, periodically these terrible uh, uh, incursions and conflicts in Gaza, which effectively ends up with the, from uh, from an outsider's perspective, the, almost the destruction of Gaza, and then it's rebuilt. So, I mean, to a degree, uh, you must be dealing with two economies, uh, the, the one, the Palestinian economy in the West Bank and the Palestinian economy in, in Gaza or what's left of it. Actually, we're dealing with more than two economies, but absolutely. I mean, Gaza is the extreme case of what, of what you know, the worst of colonial, uh, settler colonialism, if you wish. I mean, the, the, all of the terms on which the Gaza economy has been allowed to continue to breathe, let's say, for the last 10 years, are, are, have, have produced really terrible uh, human, human result, results in terms of human suffering and in terms of the lost potential, because the Gazans are, as other Palestinians, you know, and hardship breeds the sort of resilience and the sort of productivity and innovation that we've seen despite all of this in Gaza. But the the when you say two economies, I would say three. We have Jerusalem, we have East Jerusalem, you're talking about yeah. 300, 400,000 Palestinians who are, you know, connected very much so to the rest of the West Bank, uh, but live a t totally different legal, economic, tax, uh, labor regime than, 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 than those of us uh, nearby. Uh, then you have the, the whole area now which is being threatened with annexation. The so-called Area C, uh, where we have 100,000 Palestinians living in rural, uh, you know, pastoral village settings, about to become subject to direct Israeli rule. So this is a—it's a crazy patchwork of of economic regimes, and, and if, Palestinian Authority only controls a very, you know, 40 percent of the territory. Of the Roger, if you could bring that patchwork together, and I mean, the, the, you you know, the international agreed norms as for the two-state solution. This is still being argued for many people think that's really it's not really feasible anymore essentially because of what israel is doing and that ideally you have to move towards a secular one state democratic solution but all be, all that being said if um you could amalgamate those parts of the palestinian territory you just talked about with their de different economic models to form a viable to form a state could it would it be economically viable do you think look uh you know, the question of viability, the first studies about the Palestinian economy after 67 were entitled, you know, is in a Palestinian state economically viable? Uh, so this is like, you know, we're talking about 40, 50 years ago almost. Um, the question of viability was even posed when they first, the, when the British, uh, when, sorry, when the, uh, during the British mandate, the United Nations partitioned Palestine into two states. The only, in that, in that concept of, of, of Partition, a physical partition. The only concept for economic uh, activity was a union, an economic union, and that economic union was was perceived because of the, the geography, the interconnectivity, as the only way that a that a two-state solution could work. Now, what we've had for the last fifty years is we've had a, an imposed union on Israel's terms, with no recognition of the other side, but effectively. The whole of the area under Israeli sovereignty, including the 1.5 million Arabs in Israel, including mm. the 4 million uh, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, are effectively, these are you know regional economies within the orbit of the Israeli economy. Now, already we're in a situation where the one-state reality is dictating our, our, our economic opportunities and, and, and horizons. Um, the next stage, the coming stage of potential annexation, or how and what form it will take, we don't know. But the idea that now the what was viable in '47 was like 60 percent, 50 percent of the territory of Palestine. Then after '67, 22 percent West Bank and Gaza Strip. We're down now to about 50 percent of the 22 percent left. Now 
you know, viability is is really mm -hmm. a. I mean, the, the, how can you have economic viability when there's no political or, or or human viability any longer to the concept? So the the idea of of Palestinian statelets, if you wish, mm -hmm. spread under this the, the Israeli hegemony, economic hegemony. Yeah, but that's not a state. That's not what we're talking about. It's not a two-state solution, and it's not a one-state. It's not a secular democratic state solution. It's an effect, effectively an apartheid solution, and mm -hmm. or reality I don't think it's any solution that anybody would would sign up to but it's what we're what we're increasingly facing so I mean this means that you know the PA is like the nucleus if you wish of this this Palestinian Arab economy under Israeli hegemony it it's fighting very hard to maintain its 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 ability to to, to govern in the area that it can in the 40 percent of the West Bank that it's allowed to govern in uh, political division, uh, Arab, uh, you know, regional uh, lack of Arab, Arab, Arab regional support, uh, Israeli, you know, the rise of fascism in the right in Israel. It's really been a, a bad year for us. Trump, not to mention Trump in the White House, and so, so I, I, I see a, a pretty dim horizon mm -hmm. right now for anything well, but, you know, at best survival of the of the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinians without the sort of terrible. Uh, uh, deterioration to violence that we've seen in the past. Well, Roger, we've had another question. Uh, this is from, uh, and it follows on from very much from what you're saying from uh, Fahed Abu Akhal. He says, uh, how can we develop our Palestinian economy when we're under complete Israeli military occupation? Um, citizens in the USA are not aware that nothing can come in or out without the blessing of the Israeli military. That's uh, that's the point he'd like to make. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, there's a, as I said, there's a limit to the develop. I mean, to, we can't develop. There is no development under occupation. I mean, that's that. You know, let's not make a mistake. But that doesn't mean that there hasn't been growth under occupation. We have had growth. Our economy has been growing. Uh, people are living, in some ways, materially speaking, better lives than they did 20 years ago. Uh, uh, the the, the the bestowings of, uh, of of globalization are at, at anybody's, you know, uh, Palestinians can, can partake thereof. But there's been a terrible price, and and part of that is that we've 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 for 25 years and for 50, in fact, but for 25 years by our endorsing Oslo, we've accepted the sort of controls that he mentions, that Fahad mentioned, uh, whereby Palestinian imports are controlled are are coming through Israeli ports, uh, are trans uh, transported to our territories across Israeli territories by in terms you know according to Israeli security considerations Israel collects the tax even and gives us you know hopefully a fair record of what they've collected on our behalf so this number the the, the levels of strangleholds if you wish or choke points rather are extraordinary and 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 it's it doesn't end when it leaves Israel no as soon as it you know there's always Israeli internal uh, checkpoints and customs police and 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 other regulations to to, to satisfied so it's a crazy but i mean palestinians have adapted they're still there i mean they're still you know not violently and militarily but still resisting through their political positions through i mean what what administration autonomous sovereign or not around the world has stood up to the to the trump administration the way the palestinians have the weakest possible political regime in the region in the world have at least said no you know for the last however long and have refused to deal with this carrot that's been dangling no, for, for well, one thing, Raja, I wanted to mention to you, because it's, it's never been altogether clear to a lot of us, is quite what the role of the quartet has been. Now, whether I, and I can't remember, I can't recall myself whether the quartet was a 
came out of the Oslo Agreement. Certainly, wasn't it was never an official UN body. Um, so maybe you can tell us something about that. But also, I mean, for many of us, uh, um, from where I'm uh, speaking to you from, from Britain, our memory is of uh, Tony Blair, former British Prime Minister, who then went on, rather surprisingly, many of us thought, to become the Quartet's special envoy to, to Palestine and, and essentially really had an, an, an economic um, uh, uh, job to do. And I suppose my question is, uh, did he, what did he actually achieve? Are there any lasting achievements from Tony Blair and the Quartet? Well, you were, yeah, I mean, you were surprised uh, uh, that somebody like Tony Blair would end up in our part of the world. We weren't, uh, because we knew what the game was. So the game, you know, was, and, and this is, so Blair is special representative of the quartet. I think it was probably the end of the 2000s, 2000, the noughts, uh, came as a result of the formation of the quartet, which was, that indeed was formed only in, uh, upon the initial failure, if you wish, of Oslo in the second month, when everything broke down, 2001, 2002. And then there was the, the international roadmap, and then there was these new guarantors of the peace process. Uh, so that's the quartet. It's the it's the Russians, the Americans, the EU, and the United Nations, or the international organizations. Now, Blair was here as a political emissary of a bygone era where Palestinians still believed in the peace process, or at least believed they had to deal with the peace process. So Blair was tolerated because he was the emissary of the international community. But, you know, as the peace process broke down and before the peace process broke down, you know, it was clear to everybody what, what his game was. And in the meantime, though, the, there was something set up called the Office of the Quartet. Now, the Office of the Quartet is actually a, a bunch of, of professionals working on things like water, access and movement issues, basically trying to intermediate where they can between Palestinians and Israelis, not to keep the peace process alive, but to keep some sort of, of, of economic hopes uh, uh, through cooperation and through Israel, you know, obtaining Israeli permissions and acceptance. So they do important work on water, they do important work on the rule of law, they do important work on trying to get Palestinian exports as a, as a technical secretariat, but the quartet as a political animal no longer exists, which is probably a good thing. Interesting. Um, I just wonder because, you know, obviously we, we see um, how many Palestinian workers have to go about making their living, which is often having to cross from the Palestinian territories into Israel uh, and to go through interminable security procedures and sometimes um, not be able to go to work at all. And of course, on top of this right now, we've got uh, uh, a lockdown. Um, and so uh, presumably uh, an awful lot of uh, of Palestinians simply can't put food on the table. But can you explain to us something, you know, you know what the situation is where you are in Ramallah uh, and elsewhere right now for ordinary Palestinian workers? Right now, it's pretty disastrous. So you have a several, you know, several strata, social strata that have been hit by the lockdown, by the lockdown, both in terms of jobs, access to jobs in Israel as well as locally. Uh, a lot of the private sector uh, workers have been badly affected because the informal economy is like up to up to forty to forty percent of the economy. So, in, it's people who who are small as various micro enterprises, etc. There's been a across the board sort of uh, loss of income. Workers in Israel, there are about one hundred fifty one hundred fifty thousand of these people, and some of them are permitted, so are given permits by Israel to work in very specific sectors: construction, agriculture, some industry some uh, uh, services. Now, these, this is a, a, a commuter labor force, a mobile labor force, a pool, if you wish, that Israel has dipped into probably for more than its existence, even back in the days of Israel, of, of Palestine, and when you had an advanced Israeli economy requiring cheap, cheap uh, uh, manual labor. 
it's a it's it's a it's a boon and it's a burden. It's a curse and it's a burden. Um, it's a curse. It's it, 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 I mean, it's a curse and it's a blessing. It's a curse because it it means that you have the you know much better wages, pushing wage levels up in the West Bank. Uh, people who are otherwise quite skilled, but in their professions, going and working in Israel instead of working here. And then there's the financial stranglehold that that chokehold that, that entails. So at any moment, Israel closes the for security mm. reasons, or like in the, in the pandemic, you have a, a, immediately you know hundred thousand people unemployed overnight. Um, and, and and yet it's a I mean I won't say a blessing, but because of the struggle problems of building a Palestinian economy under occupation, uh, uh, you, you cannot employ your labor force. So it has provided for the daily bread of many, you know, poor, relatively uh, rural populations that otherwise would not find jobs, to be honest. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a very tricky thing. And it's obviously a, a weak point in the Palestinian economy's ability to develop as an autonomously, because we're, we're constantly subject to Israeli uh, blackmail. Yes, and on top of this, I mean, I've been looking at some of your modeling um, and economic projections uh, uh, as a result of the pandemic, and um, they, they almost all look really dire. Uh, all main sectors of the economy uh, uh, seem to uh, could be impacted, some by as much as 40%. So, you know, on top of everything else, how do you begin to rebuild after this pandemic? Well, everybody's facing that problem. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier this idea of building and rebuilding. In fact, in the case of Gaza, Gaza has been a, a case of gradually of, of, of attrition rather than ever the, re the reconstruction ever reaching where. So it's been con constantly going down. Here, rebuilding is 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 going to be problematic. I mean, it's not a matter of rebuilding; it's a matter of of, of uncertainty and certainty. And the, the the sort of certainty you need for people to reopen stores and restaurants, not only the the, the public health. I'm talking about the economics because of the coming confrontation of Israel. Had there not been this July deadline of potential annexation of the of the, of the Jordan Valley, uh, probably there would have been a lot more willingness for people to to dare and be bold and 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 try new things. But so there's going to be the structural uh, damage left over. However many people get back to work, there's going to be like in other countries, up to half of those people who were put out of employment in the last. Uh, three months will mm -hmm. not be finding work. So that adds to what we're talking. I mean, we projected up to, I mean, from a 14% uh, uh, unemployment rate before the crisis, this pandemic, up to a 31% uh, by the end of the year. And I, I don't think it's going to get much better than that. I mean, we might have some, some improvement and some rebound, but this is not the sort of situation where you have the tools to engineer a V or an L or, a, I mean, or yeah. a U. You're in an L in a uh, recession. And, and, and I don't see any rebound. All I could see is that we stopped the decline. That's the best we can do. I mean, you, you mentioned the the, you know, the periodic problems of Israel withholding financing for the Palestinian Authority, financing that the Palestinian Authority is allowed under Oslo to, to raise itself. So it's effective. Israel is actually stopping money that is that is uh, due to the Palestinian Authority. Now, what people are concerned about is what, what might happen uh, if this annexation does go ahead and the Palestine Authority does effectively disband i mean who's going to pay for anything i mean effectively disbanding i don't personally see it happening i don't, I don't see how the authority can effectively i mean can, i mean it might it's going to come we're, we're heading for confrontation i mean for sure mm. uh the the palestinian decision to stop security cooperation in response to this annexation 
has led to a threat by Israel to stop civil co cooperation. Civil, civil, civilian affairs cooperation means permits, it means passage of people who are ill into Israeli hospitals, it means people being able to travel outside, etc. So if, if that's the sort of, you know, hill, slippery slope that we're on, um, I can see that we're, we're, we're getting, to, we're going to be coming to a point where uh, probably um, if we don't have violent confrontation, uh, there's going to be serious uh, cutoff of financial flows. Israel will stop transferring the monthly tax revenues that it's supposed to, 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 to transfer to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, imports will be interrupted. Uh, Palestinian exporters, for what they're, you know, we export about a, a $300, $400 million worth of goods to the rest of the world. You know, there's going to be a number of, 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 of flashpoints. Mm. Like we had last year when the Israelis withheld uh, uh, some of those tax funds because of they wanted to stop the PA to stop paying money to families of, of, of prisoners and, and martyrs. And we're having a similar confrontation this year. And then, I mean, there's this has been a, a, two, a year or two fraught with confrontation. And I don't, I mean, I can don't, I just hope that we don't go down the really. You know, well, look, a, a couple more questions have just come in, um, the, um, I'll, I'll, I'll summate both of them. The, the first one is from uh, Naveen Sanduka. Uh, Naveen says, uh, recently we've witnessed more business people from the Gulf who are interested in developing partnerships with Israel, totally neglecting the Palestinians. So how can we include the Palestinian businesses in these relations? And how can this all be used as a pressure point to give Palestinians more rights? Um, and another question from Fahud uh, Abu Akhl, do we have a strategy for the Palestinian economy like a five-year or 10-year or 25-year plan? Um, you cut at the end, but I, you cut a little bit at the end. On the first question, let me just uh, briefly say that uh, the 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 threat, the strategic danger, let's say, of normalization, economic or political normalization between Arab states and and Israel, is something that you know that the Palestinians obviously cannot deal with on their own, uh, and 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 will not try to accept by not joining it. So I mean, I think that what we need to see a parallel to that. And there have been efforts, and I know there were attempts by Palestinian business and Palestinian government to set up precisely the, 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 a parallel uh, set of, 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 of investment relations, which are not non-existent, but are, you know, Arab investors, like any investor, they see a very uncertain situation. They're not going to mm -hmm. easily part with their funds only out of love of Palestine. So, I mean, we're in a situation now where Palestinians, where, where we need support from Arab, Arab financial support for Palestinians to just be able to, to, to be resilient and resist and, and, and not have, I mean, resist encroachment, Israeli encroachment and annexation, rather than the sort of uh, uh, building the Palestinian economy type investment that would be needed in strategic, uh, or strategic. Well, we have another question from um, Shubda, and actually it's it following on a little from what I was hoping to ask, which was really about the effect of the um, extensive budget cuts for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that, but she also would like to know um, if the UNRWA training centres have actually helped the Palestinian labour force. Look, UNRWA was, you know, I mean, before the Palestinian Authority, there was UNRWA. Uh, it was providing jobs, it was providing education, it was providing health services, it was providing work uh, projects. And, and, and obviously the budget cuts, and these are not recent. I mean, this is, a, again, this is an attritional, a long, long uh, uh, trajectory, downward trajectory of, 
of of cutting, cutting, cutting for political mm-hmm. or for other reasons. Um, but uh, you know, it's still a, a commitment to UNRWA was renewed uh, last General Assembly. Uh, it's not only the United States that, that, however important as it has been, it's not only the United States which the Palestinians and UNRWA can rely on. Luckily, the Europeans and the Arab countries have have stepped up, stepped up. And I think that you know, you, we we we've, I mean. UNRWA is a part and parcel of Palestinian life. So the training centers are just one of the, uh, an important uh, part of the tra- vocational training uh, sector in Palestine. They, you know, education is is now the only service, in fact, that UNRWA provides mm. universally. Its health services are pretty much uh, uh, reduced to certain types of, you know, childcare, et cetera. And its works and uh, 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 employment programs are a thing of the past. So what is UNRWA today except you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a an agency that that can intervene in times of relief, and like the WFP and other agencies, you know, provide food parcels when it's really bad. Um, but otherwise, its educational system is part and parcel. You know, we can't do that. As well as the fact that it uh, runs the camps, and the camps still there are still there. You can't just ignore that. They will yeah. continue until we have some some resolution. And, and those camps are, as you know, are places where Palestinian identity flourishes. So. I mean, a, a lot of what you've been talking about is and, and the, the, signif- the importance for the Palestinian economy in terms of, of, of future travel, future prospects for people is obviously stability, and that's economic stability and political stability. Do you think that the US presidential elections this November could be really rather more important than most US presidential elections are for which, which kind of stability follows? Well, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. presidential. I mean, if 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 this if this administration stays in power, then it's really it's really bad news for us. Uh, and I don't see, you know, this. I mean, what you said earlier about the possibility of this no longer being sustainable. It won't be even a, necessarily a decision to collapse the PA. The PA will then just no longer be able to function, literally, in the term because the terms of reference of the twenty five past twenty five years have been ripped up. The American, this administration has completely negated all of the terms of reference, land for peace, 242, occupation, Jerusalem, etc. So the best that can be hoped for is if a democratic administration does uh, at least put a halt to this continued uh, American reversal and, and complete, I mean, somehow, or remove itself from the balance and let the rest of the world work it out. I don't know. But I mean, uh, I don't see, you know, we don't, too many Palestinian governments have, have, or leaderships over the past have invested a lot in the next American election um, uh, and, and postponed things and said, let's wait until and let's, and you'll see after. And just really, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. I mean, Obama was really the big, big, big uh, disappointment because of all of the expectations and, and what he ended up, you know, he tried hard, but he was totally ineffective. And he, cre- and he helped pave the way for Trump in terms of US policy, I suppose, in the Middle East. But I'm sure that whatever Trump doesn't, you know, here is in the Middle East will not have any effect on his re-election chances. Yes, and I mean, Middle East, Middle East has never been an issue in American elections. I mean, all, all, all sort of future global predictions are, are kind of um, they're all up there right now. Nobody, these are we we do really do live in pre- unprecedented, unpredictable times. And so this, this final question I'm going to put to you, you might think it's a bit unfair, but I mean, if you were to look into your crystal ball the next 10 20 years 
I mean, do you are you are you a, an optimist or a pessimist? Do you see the kind of the real politic actually of a of a of a of a, of a settler state that can't compromise, if effectively losing control in the longer run, or a settler state that can compromise, um, and for a final just democratic solution to arise um, in the territories? What do well, how do you how do you look at it all? Twenty-five years ago, I was—I mean—believing uh, in the in, that Oslo was, you know, the right way forward, and I lived it long enough to realize that at the time it was the right way forward. But there was a moment at which we had to—we should have shifted course. Uh, in the meantime, Israel has gone ahead and continued its state-building project in the West Bank. Right? Uh, I mean, the only real state-building project ongoing in the West Bank is that of Israel through its settlement project. Now, I also know that. That that side of you know west of Ramallah is is the state of Tel Aviv, and the state of Tel Aviv, if you've ever been there, is like somewhere totally different from where you from what we read about in terms of of Israeli politics and the shift to the right and annexation and the settlers. So I know that there are a lot of Israelis out there uh, who would have been happy for a Palestinian state to exist alongside, and these and the same Israelis ultimately would be happy. If for the rest of the Palestinians, in, in, I mean, for the Palestinians to all become Israelis huh? on the same terms that Arabs, 1.5 million Arabs. But the, the, this silent majority in Israel is killing us, to be honest, because, you know, we're, in the meantime, the country is being run by a band of, of crazies, or at least extreme hardliners, people who have no humanity left in some, some and no view of the other of Palestinians even existing. I mean, I, I, I know that the future, 20 years, will be Palestinian, Arab, Jewish, Israeli. I mean, they're not going, the Israelis, there's no, I mean, I have no uh, uh, expectation or demand that they uh, somehow uh, turn, uh, turn into Palestinians uh, or leave. The, so that, that Palestinians have long ago acquiesced themselves mm -hmm. to the existence of the Jewish people in, 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 in Palestine. But the terms on which we're now living obviously have to change. So there's going to be a, a struggle, a struggle between Arab Israelis and, and, and Jewish Israelis, a struggle between Palestinians and the West Bank, and and, and that's moving in in, in in terms of correcting the the very what is now a one-state reality and turning it into a just one, state reality, mm. a democratic one. And that's a long struggle. That's you know a 20, 30-year struggle, I guess. It's not, you know, the, 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 the Tel Avivans are going to, and I don't believe that they have to be shaken to their core through either terror or whatever, you know, threatened in order to come to their senses. I think they're going to have to realize how, you know, where the Israeli right is taking Israel and realize that there's a very different, that, that that's that, that's dangerous, as dangerous for them as it is for us. Yeah, that's um, my hope. So it's hopeful, I suppose. That's hopeful. And actually looking at the, on the optimistic side, I mean, uh, it's happened elsewhere. I mean, South Africa being a, a, a good example, perhaps. Um, but look, I, unfortunately, we have to bring things to a close today and uh, to thank uh, Raja Khalidi very, very much indeed for his uh, great insights uh, and wisdom. Uh, it's been it's been educational. Uh, and uh, I would really very much like to thank you, Raja, for, for coming and joining us today on Palestine Deep Dive and to thank everybody behind the scenes who have been working so hard to make this happen. Uh, and uh, until next time, that's all from us here at Palestine Deep Dive. Thank you very much, and I'll keep watching your series in, in the coming weeks. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Roger.